Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. A newspaper turns a mirror on a city and examines the reality of racism. What it finds is hard to hear. The net worth of white families in this area is $247,000 and change, and the net worth of African-American families was $8. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankosky. We'll talk with the Boston Globe columnist about the image, the reality, the causes, and some solutions to racism in Boston. We'll also hear the story of a man who came to the U.S. young and undocumented and gay, facing hostility at home and fearing deportation. I had to run away at some point because my father, he was so aggressive, my life was in danger. And we'll ask fishermen in the U.K. about their decision to jump ship and get into the booming offshore wind power business. Really, you're nothing other than a floating taxi. And just eat grub all day and get fat. If that's what you want to do, there will be jobs. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative. Eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region. With support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankosky. This week, the fate of young immigrants has been at the center of a Washington political debate over DACA, or Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. They've been a chip in a bigger political fight over keeping the government open. At stake is whether these so-called dreamers, who were brought to the country illegally by their parents years ago, will be allowed to stay or be forced to return to countries that many of them don't consider home. The movement behind the original DREAM Act began nearly 20 years ago when a teenager in Chicago contacted her U.S. senator. She's known as the original dreamer, and WBUR's Shannon Dooling sat down with her. Teresa Lee says she's an introvert, and stepping into the limelight does not come naturally to her. She's had to work at speaking out publicly as an immigrant rights advocate. And her 16-year-old self, back in 2000, worked to understand the concept of being undocumented, well before the word dreamer was a political term. I thought I was alone, and I thought, uh, frankly, uh, we might have been the only undocumented family in the country. I was, I was uh, just, uh, um, we didn't know. Lee says her parents lost everything in the Korean War. They took a chance and moved from Korea to Brazil, where Lee and one of her brothers were born. She says her parents' bank account was robbed in Brazil. They lost everything again. So she says her mother sold her wedding ring, and they brought the family to Chicago for another chance at a new life. Eventually, their travel visas expired, but the family stayed. All I was thinking of when I was 16 years old was that I needed to do something about my status and my family's status, and what uh, can we do about it? We had to contact Senator Durbin. And so she did. And in 2001, Democratic Senator Richard Durbin of Illinois and Republican Senator Orrin Hatch of Utah introduced what became known as the DREAM Act. Senator Durbin calls Lee's story his inspiration— Lee says her family was her inspiration. What we grew up with was the fear of separation. 
And uh, especially because we were undocumented, we were so isolated from the outside world. And that brought our family closer together. I've seen you speak about that isolation before. Do you see how that isolation has had an impact on the path that your life has taken? Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, the fact that we were undocumented, we didn't want to risk our family, so we could not talk about it with anyone else outside of our families. We just were so afraid that it might just slip out of our tongues. We almost became completely muted to the outside communities, and once we stepped out outside of the house, we did our best not to talk unless it was absolutely necessary. So that kind of isolation definitely has a very um, an all-pervasive impact uh, in our lives, daily lives. And so talking about that pervasive isolation, it, it uh, makes me think about some of the families and some of the, the young people that I've been talking to over the last year. Now that uh, immigration has really jumped into the foreground of our country in a way that it hasn't in, our, in quite some time, what are your observations about um, the current sort of lay of the land? Mm-hmm. First, I want to address uh, the movement. It wasn't until around 2005 when the first surveys came out about how many undocumented immigrants there actually was in this country, and that number was about 100,000 people. In 2007, new numbers came out and said, actually, there are millions of undocumented people. People started coming out to say, I am undocumented and unafraid, and this is what is actually happening in our communities. And those seeds have been growing for years and years and years, for about a decade. And that's where we are right now with the Trump's administration that is escalating the attack on the immigrants. The attack on immigrants was already happening uh, before Trump. So your your assessment might be that uh, living as an undocumented immigrant in under a Trump presidency is just as stressful and scary and uncertain as it has ever been in the U.S. Yes, absolutely. It's always been uncertain. And I, I am seeing under Trump's uh, administration that a lot more people are coming out with the hate and the uh, the racist rhetoric. However, I just want to point out that the DREAM Act right now has a public support of 83%. Public support happened because of the movement of the DREAMers coming out and sharing their stories. And now the public is understanding more that we are their neighbors and their friends and classmates and their teachers and co-workers. And that is a win for the immigrant community right now. Uh, We need real legislation passed to protecting the DREAMers and then eventually comprehensive immigration reform. What is your message then to current DREAMers who are living in that uncertain, unsure, anxious place right now? I think there is a lot of hope uh, and just looking at the percentage of how many people support us and the immigrant community, 
I hope that they will be encouraged and become active. That was uh, one of the greatest things for me to discover because we shared the same experience of growing up living in the shadows. I realized that I was not alone. That's Teresa Lee speaking with reporter Shannon Dooling. Lee is now an American citizen by marriage and is closely following the debate in Washington. Saul Grujan's family arrived from the Dominican Republic when he was two years old. For most of his childhood, he wasn't aware that they'd come without papers. His undocumented status became crucially important once Saul was a teenager, having come out to his family as gay. He encountered such hostility that it felt dangerous to stay at home. Saul was able to apply for a temporary visa through VAWA, the Violence Against Women Act. Saul told a story to New England Public Radio's Words in Transit Project. I wasn't aware of being an immigrant and the the emotional charges that came with it until I was in eighth grade. I was about to graduate from my middle school and they needed a baby picture of me and I had a passport with the only baby picture that my parents had of me and I cut that picture out of the passport and I showed it to my teacher and everyone, meaning my classmates, they realized that I had the stamp of a permanent resident so I wasn't legal in the country and I didn't know what that meant. Terms like social security or permanent residency never came up when I was at home or at school. So wasn't really aware of it until eighth grade. But I realized what how important it was to have a social security number. My 10th grade year in high school, I went to a Scholar Institute program. And in order to qualify for scholarships, they needed my social security number. And that's when I asked my parents. And they told me that I didn't have one. Around my junior year, I became homeless because of my sexual orientation. And I was the only homosexual in the family, so it was odd. Just the thought of liking other men was absurd. And my mother was a religious zealot, and my father was a male chauvinist, and (laughs) homosexuality didn't really exist. And religion or a male shamanist like setting it got physical I started realizing that I didn't have to succumb to my parents way that I didn't have to live a double life I read books I read Beloved I read The Why Oleander and you know I started identifying myself with these characters who left their homes for certain reasons and I had to run away at some point because my father he was so aggressive to the point where I my life was in danger basically and I really couldn't go far or do much because they instilled a fear in me that if immigration caught me that I would be deported back to my country so my actions were very limited, and luckily I, I had friends that allowed me to stay with them, and 
they didn't really hesitate taking me in because they saw bruises and you know other injuries on me that compelled them to to help me when I could no longer reside with my friends for fear that of telling them that I was undocumented, I had to live in homeless shelters. And that was uh, very traumatizing because there were other homeless that were different, that didn't have any interest in reading books, that didn't want to go to school, that whenever they heard the word college, it meant nothing to them. And teens that were angry and upset with with their parents and not having a job and not having a a place to stay and having to share a bedroom with 23 others. I didn't like that living situation. So that's when I called one of my high school mentors. I was in a program called Pathways to College. It's like a pre-college program for students who are located in urban settings and don't have much resources and that could use the guidance of someone who knows about college and someone that can encourage you and push you to apply to institutions like the one that I'm in and other institutions that provide full financial aid regardless of whether you're legal or whether you can afford to to attend that school. I call my mentor and she had a network of people that were interested in helping me. All of a sudden, people just started contributing to the the rent expenses at the YMCA. And I had my own room. I had a side job with Pathways to College, and they tried their very best to help me, although their commitment was to help me until I graduated high school. And here I was two years after high school and they were still helping me. A guidance counselor from my school couldn't believe the situation that I was in. And when they looked at my transcript, there was a social security number. And it just so happens that every student, whether they're documented or not, they they have a, a bogus social security number. So they verified whether it was my social security number and it wasn't. So she did so much research and she looked into Catholic charities in Trenton, New Jersey, and they offered to help me at at no cost. That's how I found out about VAWA and how I could apply for, for a green card. It was very difficult because they needed evidence of the domestic violence acts, you know, from individuals that saw my parents hurting me at some point. So I needed at least five letters. And the most important one was from my sister because she she grew up with me and she saw too much of it, too much of the violence. And they really needed her testimony. I told my sister that she had to try her best to remember what happened that night. And she couldn't do it. She said that she could never talk about what happened that night. And then I saw it in her eyes. She she was thinking about it. 
And then I started thinking about it. And I remember coming back home from Barringer High School with a gay bracelet. And my mother seeing me go into my room. When I came back out of my bedroom, my mom saw my wrist and asked me if she could pray for me. And I got nervous. I hesitated to move forward and to allow my mom to pray for me, but she just said, come my son, I, I just want to pray for you. I closed my eyes and I feel my mother's arm around me and she started praying the Hail Mary in Spanish. Santa Maria, Madre de Dios. Santa Maria, Madre de Dios. Santa Maria, Madre de Dios, ruega por ella y nosotros los pecadores. And then all of a sudden I felt olive oil dripping down from my forehead to my shirt. And I told my mom, Mom, please, please, Mom, I'm your son. Didn't do this to me, please. And she said, you are not my son and you are not gay. And if you are gay, then this is what's going to happen to you. And then all of a sudden, my mother turned to the stove. She turned the stove on, lit a piece of paper on fire, and threw it on me. And then I yelled, Johnny, I'm on fire! Johnny, please help me, I'm on fire! And then all of a sudden, my sister just pushes me and slaps my mother and tells her, You are not God, and you are not a good mother. Who do you think you are trying to take the life of your own child? And then all of a sudden, my sister turned to a cabinet. She took out a knife, and then she ripped my shirt open. And I free myself from the fire. She thought about it. I thought about it. And I told her that she had to do it, that this was the only way that I was going to become legal. And she said, why don't you just marry a woman? And I said, what kind of man would marry a woman, being gay, and lie to her in the most important night of her life? And she said, you're right, I have to sign this. Saul Grujan recorded that story while he was a student at Amherst College, where he majored in Spanish and English. It was produced by Temis Silk and John Vosey at New England Public Radio. You can hear more stories of immigrants from the Words in Transit podcast at nepr.net or wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up, Boston Racism, Image and Reality. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. About a year ago, we heard Boston Mayor Marty Walsh take a staunchly pro-immigrant stand in the face of President Trump's executive order, pledging to strip funding from so-called sanctuary cities. Walsh said that people fearing deportation could live at City Hall if they wanted. But there's another group whose members don't always feel welcome in Boston, African Americans. Saturday Night Live cast member Michael Che brought this up 
before last year's Super Bowl when the Patriots were getting ready to play the Atlanta Falcons. I mean, I used to make fun of white guys getting upset at Kaepernick for protesting the national anthem, but now I get it. I'm exhausted too. For three hours, I just don't want to talk about any social issues or politics. I just want to relax, turn my brain off, and watch the blackest city in America beat the most racist city I've ever been to. Sport and race have long been a sore spot in the city of Boston, but the history goes deeper than that. Protests and riots around court-ordered school desegregation in the 1970s were an especially ugly time for African Americans in Boston, and it's a time that's left lasting scars. Some white students and parents opted to boycott rather than attend integrated schools. A reporter from WGBH-TV interviewed a student named Mike in Southie. Why ain't I going to school? I'm boycotting. How come? What do you think? The cops are up there? They're locking up the the schools from the outside. Plus this busing. I don't want nothing to do with it. How long are you going to stay out? Oh, yeah. You think this is going to stop it? I think if we get a total boycott, it'll stop it. Last fall, the Boston Globe Spotlight team, known for investigations into issues like political corruption and sex abuse in the Catholic Church, took on what they call their most difficult question yet. Does Boston deserve its reputation as a racist city? and a city that's unfriendly to blacks in particular. My guest, Adrian Walker, is a columnist for the Metro section of the Boston Globe. He was also part of the team behind the Spotlight series, Boston, Racism, Image, Reality. Adrian, welcome to Next. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Why don't you start by telling us a bit about what went into the decision for the Spotlight team to dig into this really important Boston question. What big questions did you want to ask in the first place? You know, this idea had been percolating a little bit uh, before, but it was really, uh, we really got going on it after an incident in Fenway Park in early May in which a visiting player, uh, Adam Jones, the center fielder for the Baltimore Orioles, was called a racial epithet from the fans in the stands and had a bag of peanuts thrown at him. That got our editor, Brian McGrory, thinking, well, the reaction to it, you know, the reaction that, of course, this is the kind of thing that would happen in Boston. Boston is a natural place for it. It got Brian thinking about the city's reputation for racism and whether it's still deserved. And that was sort of the idea that got that began the series. It's interesting that it starts with sports, as it so often does in Boston. Uh, and you wrote specifically a, a, about this question. Maybe we can start there. Uh, is there a deserved reputation about Boston sports fans that they are racist? I don't think Boston sports fans are necessarily more racist than fans anywhere else. But I have to say that in the course of reporting the story on sports, uh, I did find that there were more incidents, at least more reported incidents, here than in other cities. So it's definitely an issue. And and this goes back for quite some time. And, and in part, it it stems from the fact that Boston has been very slow, at least sports teams have, to to integrate, to maybe deal with some of the, the key racial issues that other sports cities have, have had to deal with. What do you think are some of the root causes uh, of this problem or even the perception of the problem in the city? Well, you know, when you, when you talk about it, it all begins with the Red Sox, who were the last team to integrate. They were the last team to have a black player, Pumsey Green, in 1959, which is, by the way, three years after Jackie Robinson had retired. <laughs> he came and went before there was a black player on the Boston Red Sox. And that sort of reputa- the reputation for intolerance in Boston sports, I think, really begins there. And it has been, as you say, stubborn and enduring and no doubt about it, to some degree, deserved. It's somewhat deserved, but as with anything, 
it may just be a few bad apples that spoil the whole bunch. I mean, it's it's not every Boston sports fan is is yelling out uh, racial names at someone, but all oh, it takes no. is a few. That's right. All it takes is a few. You know, the story I wrote ended up being headlined, The Bigot in the Stands and Other Stories. And one of the reasons we gave it that title is because it, it ended up being a story partly about how the actions of a handful of people can tarnish an entire city's reputation. So maybe that leads us out of sports and into into the rest of what the series kind of tells us about Boston. Why don't you look at the big picture first? And as you were reporting this with your colleagues, what are some of the, the big themes that you saw saw coming up over and over again? One of the thing, one of the big themes that came out over and over again was the way economics drives so many of the other of the city's other racial issues. The, you know, the single fact in the series by far that really stays with everybody is from a Federal Reserve report uh, from 2015 that found that the net worth of white families in this area is $247,000 and change, and the net worth of African American families was eight dollars. You know, that was such a shocking number that we actually ended up having to do a second story explaining, no, it's not a typo or a mistake. That's a real number, and this is how it was arrived at. And, and, and that economic disparity becomes the driver of so many things. It becomes the driver of other things we looked at, which is segregation in health care, education, higher education, and so forth. And that economic disparity that you're talking about, it's not just a divide between uh, very affluent white people and very poor black people. It seems no. to it seems to be a, a crater where the middle class would be. A, a black middle class just doesn't seem to exist in Boston. Per, precisely. I mean, the middle class does exist, but it is demonstrably, measurably smaller than in other cities, and that's a big problem. And that became really one of the central themes of the series. You know, the middle class, the black middle class, other cities have has never quite evolved here. Well, talk about the the demographic piece of this and whether or not there's a there's a chicken or egg situation when it comes to uh, black people living in the city of Boston. You know, for for years and years, Boston has been a whiter place, both inside the city and in the suburbs than many other urban areas. Do you think it has to do with black people feel unwelcome there, or is there something else at play in terms of just the raw numbers of of black people who are able to decide to live in in the city? Well, I have to say that what you said is only partly true. You know, this is a city that is, you know, 53 percent people of color, but it often doesn't feel that way. And another of the things we ended up talking about a lot was sort of the isolation that you have here and the fact that it actually is a more diverse city than it feels like. I think demographics is part of the explanation for this, but I don't think it fully explains it by any means. It's a city where every boom seems to somehow, you know, elude the grasp of African Americans and the questions that raises fall beyond demographics. Although it's certainly true that it's a very white area of the country, it's a very white state and region, and that's a factor. I mean, obviously Boston is going to have fewer black-owned businesses and fewer of a lot of things than a city like Atlanta or Washington or Chicago. But again, I don't think that fully explains it. You you mentioned this boom that seems to elude uh, residents of color in Boston. There's another one happening right now. It's down near the Seaport District, this whole waterfront area that was just, hey, when I lived in Boston 30 years ago, there was literally nothing there. And and you, you write about this in your series that the city of Boston had a chance to build something for all Bostonians, but it really seems more white than any other part of the city. 
That's right. I mean, in the last 20, 25 years, the city has essentially built a new neighborhood from scratch. And by every measure, it's one of the whitest neighborhoods in town in terms of who lives there, who plays there, who works there, who's working on the, who's building the buildings there. It, it's really unbelievable. And it is a perfect example of how every boom in Boston seems to somehow elude the black community. Yeah, just uh, a few homeowners in that entire new district uh, who are African-Americans. Three mortgages, I believe. It was three or four mortgages out of hundreds that have gone to African-Americans. That's amazing. So so what do you think leads to that? I mean, is it is it about preference? Is it about choice? Is it about uh, racial politics still at play? I mean, what leads to that kind of disparity? It's partly about racial politics. It's partly about what people feel comfortable. And it's partly about economics. But the point is, you know, the city and the state have tools that they can and should use to begin to address some of these problems, and they simply haven't done it. When you go to City Hall or you go to the State House and you say, how do we build this all-white neighborhood? You know, first you get a blank stare, and then you get, we never really thought about it that way. And it's time to begin to think about it. I, I, I should ask you, you know, you talk about uh, 53% of the city being uh, uh, people of color. So that's not just African-Americans, but you chose to focus in this series predominantly on the black-white divide in the city. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about why the Globe Spotlight team made that choice? That was one of the first decisions we made. And the reason we made that decision was because, again, one of the things we were looking about looking at was the city's image for racism and whether it was deserved. And when you think about that image... That's really about the experience African-Americans have historically had here. A lot of it goes back to the school busing crisis of the, uh, the mid-70s. And, you know, when people talk about Boston being racist, they're not talking about being Asian in Boston or being Latino in Boston. They're talking about what it's like to be black in Boston. When Michael Che makes fun of Boston, he's talking about what it's like to be black in Boston. So that became the focus of the series. To take us back to that time, if you would, for, for some of our listeners who are outside of Boston and maybe don't remember that, that history, the, the segregation and school busing uh, clashes that happened back then, that has very deep roots and it's still felt in many of the neighborhoods today. Yeah, sure. Uh, the schools were desegregated by court order in 1974, and in South Boston in particular and in Charlestown, two Boston neighborhoods, you know, there was racial violence. There was all kinds of unrest that went on for years, and it defined the city, uh, not only locally but across the nation, as, as really a place of intolerance. You know, before that, people thought, you know, people including here, were happy to have people think that racism was a Southern problem. It brought, it made America realize in a way that had never really been felt fully before that it was not a southern problem, that northern cities could be just as segregated and just as racist. And and as you say, it continues to reverberate 40-some years later. And it also it reverberates continually in the education system, both the K through 12 system, but also in higher education, as you found it. It's much more difficult for uh, black Bostonians to, to find a good education. Yeah, and one of the things that's interesting is we looked at data in higher education. Of course, this is, you know, a higher education mecca. And you look at, you know, the percentage of black students in the early 80s versus now, and you find no change at all. I mean, like none. The the numbers have barely budged. You know, 4% then, 4% now, black undergraduates. Now, there are a bunch of things that go into that. Again, the demographics of a heavily white area, the fact that a lot of the colleges here are exclusive and therefore very expensive. But still, the fact that the needle hasn't moved at all in 35 years was one of the most surprising findings to me. As you look at this problem uh, holistically, is this something that 
Bostonians, by and large, have said they they want to grapple with? I mean, I can only imagine that your series has gotten an awful lot of comments and an awful lot of letters to the editor. What are people saying about how much they want to address this problem? You know, one of the most heartening things about it is that people really do want to talk about it. You know, we started a uh, Facebook group when the series began to run called Discussing Race in Boston. People are holding meetups around town to talk about it. You know, little groups of people meet getting together in bars to talk about what they can do. We've had a lot of people ask us to come in and speak and talk about it. So people want to have this conversation. And I have to tell you, I've been at the Globe almost 30 years, and I don't think that's the reaction we would have gotten, say, 10 years ago. It's really healthy and really good to see. And why do you think that is? Why do you think that more people are willing to have that conversation? Is it generational in part? I mean, something we've heard over and over again is a millennial generation that uh, is currently holding a little bit more power than they did 10 or 20 years ago. Uh, They are much more ready to have a conversation about race and much more ready to change things than perhaps a, a baby boomer generation that has been in place in Boston for quite some time. Partly it's generational, partly it's the fact that Boston, for a bunch of reasons, has had a huge influx of people from outside. But, you know, for a combination of reasons, the reaction is much less defensive than it would have been uh, a while back. I, I have to ask you about Boston's place in, in America, too. It, it's always been seen as this second city to, to New York, a little bit more provincial in terms of the way, whether it's sports fans talk about it or, or whether or not it's perceived in, in the national spotlight. Do you think that the perceived and real racism that you found in Boston holds the city back from being on par with a New York City or, or being all that it could be? There's no question that it holds the city back from being all that it could be. And, you know, this goes back to your last question, too, about why people want to talk about it. This is something that people in Boston, I believe, want to begin to get past. What are some things that you see as potential solutions? As, as, as a columnist, as a reporter who's been working there for, for 30 years, you've probably encountered an awful lot of people trying to solve these problems. What do you see as some solutions here? Well, I think there are some political changes that would help. Uh, you know, I, but I think the most important thing is that people are willing to engage the issue and begin to have the conversations, because even that has not happened previously. You know, the solutions will be different in different areas. The last day of the series was a day of solutions in which we kind of took each of the six things we'd written about and talked about small things that would advance the city. Did you get some uh, personal favorites, some things that people were were talking about in the comments or uh, with the Facebook group, some ideas that that stuck with you? Well, my personal crusade, which actually predates the series, is renaming the street Fenway Park sits on. It's Yaki Way, and I want it renamed because Yaki was the last owner to uh, hire a black player. Ah, so so there you go. I think that would send a real message, especially because it's Fenway Park. It's such an iconic uh, piece of Boston. I think that's a change that would really send a message in Boston and beyond. If if you want to get at people in Boston, you gotta gotta kind of hit, hit them where they're thinking. And, and Fenway Park is is pretty much as close to the heart of Boston as any place else. That's right. I have to ask you about your, your, your newspaper, too. When, when we talk about uh, leadership in Boston, uh, people in charge of civic institutions there, has this prompted any sort of a, a, a new way of thinking at the Boston Globe, which probably doesn't have as much African-American leadership as, as it could as well? Yeah, that, that's exactly true. And uh, it definitely has prompted that. And in the Day of Solutions that I mentioned earlier, you know, we talked about ourselves. And one of the things our editor, Brian McGrory, said is that we're going to commit 
to more diversity and more inclusion. And one of the things we're going to do is every time we hire somebody, we're going to make sure there are people of color included in the pool, uh, which is an idea actually borrowed from pro football, you know, and their Rooney rule. We're going to institute it at the Globe as a means to begin to make changes. Adrian, before I let you go, I just should ask you, as, as someone who's, who's lived and worked in Boston for such a long time, how, how personal is this question to you? I mean, is this something that, that you think about every day as a Bostonian? Is this something that you've kind of taken as, uh, as just common knowledge that, that Boston is a city that, that has problems with racism and, and we're just going to have to deal with them? Or, or, or is this something that, that, that you think can change in, in your lifetime? Well, I think it can change, but yeah, it's something that's very personal. As you say, I've lived here a long time, and I've written about this issue a lot, but to really spend six months really immersed in it and really looking at the data and really looking at how little it's changed by so many markers, yeah, it's very personal. The city needs to get past not merely the reputation, but also the reality. Do do, do you think that it would help if if maybe the, the sports radio stations tuned it down a little bit? (laughs) <laughs> yes, I think the sports radio stations definitely have some things to answer for. You know, but that's a big part of the question in America right now, right? The the way in which we talk about the other, whoever the other is, it really does. It's it's more than just words. It really leads to problems. It happens in, in sports talk radio. It happens on 24-hour cable channels. It even sometimes morphs over onto public radio where I am. How much do you think that the way that we, we talk about race and racism is is causing some of the problems that are inherent in the city? I think it's a big part of the problem. I mean, one of the things I wrote about was WEI's flagship show, Kirk and Callahan. You know, which is terrible on the issue of race. I mean, consistently, year after year. Their response, of course, was simply to attack me. They wouldn't address the issue itself. But, you know, if this is, if these are going to be the venues where we talk about race, and this is going to be the way we talk about race, that's really problematic. Adrian Walker is a columnist with the Boston Globe. Thank you so much for your time, and thanks for all the work on this, on this series. My pleasure. It's been great to be with you. Coming up, a look at how fishermen see offshore wind from across the pond. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. We've been reporting on plans to build more wind farms in the waters off of New England and New York, and the opposition by some fishermen to those plans. But right now, aside from a small array of turbines off the coast of Rhode Island, the worries are theoretical. So WBUR reporter Chris Bentley visited fishermen working near giant wind farms in the UK to find out what they think. It's a sunny afternoon in the English town of Ramsgate, and Steve Barrett is getting ready to fish. He's on the deck of his boat, the Razorbill, running a massive tangle of nets through a squeaky pulley. There's a fish still stuck in one of them, so he tosses it to the side. There's one I missed. That's a diver sole. So that'll be my dinner later. (laughs) Once Barrett departs, it'll be a long trip to waters near the Netherlands, where he'll fish for more Dover sole. At the moment, I'm having to steam three hours to catch fish. Two reasons I'm having to steam three hours. One, to try and avoid fish I have no quota for. And the other reason is the wind farm's in the way. Barrett's talking about a wind farm in the Thames estuary that's been in operation for the past seven years. It's one of four off the coast of this region of England, and there are plans for an expansion. 
Barrett says he's lost valuable fishing ground to the wind farm, and he worries new wind farms will drive fish even further away. Those are concerns echoed by some fishermen in New England, where states, including Massachusetts, hope the next boom in offshore wind will take off. But European wind farm developers, some of whom are working on proposals to build in the U.S., say their industry can coexist with fishing, and they point to scientists to make their case. Tracy Dalton of the University of Rhode Island is studying how the only offshore wind farm currently running in the U.S. is affecting fishermen there. Her team is still gathering data, but she says so far, some sport fishermen are reporting that the five turbines of the Block Island wind farm might actually be attracting fish, like an artificial reef. A lot of charter boat captains are now taking people out for tours of the wind turbines, or they're targeting, you know, fish around the turbines. And so that's kind of an interesting change in how the area is being used. Dalton says commercial fishermen, on the other hand, are skeptical. There haven't been a lot of long-term studies of how wind farms affect fisheries after they're up and running. And the Block Island wind farm is just five turbines. Meeting Massachusetts energy goals could mean hundreds more. That could make some parts of the East Coast look more like the English coast, where offshore wind farms are an increasingly common sight. From a seaside bluff in Broadstairs, another harbor just up the road from Ramsgate, you can just make out the north coast of France. And much closer, a row of wind turbines, the same farm fisherman Steve Barrett will head through later on his way to Dutch waters. That's where I meet John Nichols, who helps run the local fishermen's association. He says 10 years ago, fishermen here thought offshore wind was a pipe dream. By the time they got together to oppose it, it was too late. Nichols says New England's fishermen shouldn't waste time fighting wind farm developers. Instead, he says, they should form fishermen's associations to increase their bargaining power. You can't work against them. You've got to work with them. But if you're one fisherman going to a developer, he won't have any time for you. If you're, in our case, 40-plus boats, then they will listen to you. And I think that's the most important thing. Strong, they can be small, but strong associations. As the offshore wind industry has ballooned in the U.K., the reaction from some British fishermen has been, if you can't beat them, join them. Jason Parrott used to fish out of Ramsgate as a skipper for two vessels, but found himself without a job when the owner of the boats sold them off one day seven years ago. And uh, basically, he told me overnight that he was selling both boats. Hmm. What did you think when you heard that? I was sick. Worry, um, no money for the family, uh, bills to pay. Within the hour, he says he was texting a friend who worked with one of the new wind companies in town. He landed a job with a wind farm catamaran, ferrying technicians out to the turbines for daily maintenance. Parrott says he used to love living off the sea. So while driving a wind farm vessel is more stable than the boom and bust of being a commercial fisherman, he's missing something in his new job. The main um, aspect of it was the boredom. When, when we actually dropped the technicians off, we are out there for eight hours and even though they're magnificent, luxurious boats, you'll still sit in there. And I was always active. The others were all used to it. They could sit there all day with a DVD. Um, that was the hardest transition for me. Back at the harbor in Ramsgate, another wind farm vessel pulls into port down the pier from Steve Barrett, who's almost ready to go out for the evening. Barrett says he'll never take a job with the wind farms, like Parrott and many of his former colleagues have. And he has this advice for fishermen in New England thinking of jumping ship. Really, you're nothing other than a floating taxi. And just eat grub all day and get fat. If that's what you want to do, there will be jobs. If you want to be 
a fisherman for the next 20, 30 years or however long it is, I suggest you and your community oppose it at every stage possible. Some fishermen in the U.S. are taking their fight to court. In September, a group of fishing organizations sued to stop a wind farm planned off the coast of New York. For Barrett's part, he says he's done fighting. Like a lot of older fishermen, he's gotten used to dealing with change, even sharing the ocean with wind farms. As he nears retirement, there aren't many younger fishermen left in Ramsgate to replace him. But wind farm technician? That's a growth industry. That's Chris Bentley reporting. If jobs in the new energy economy are seen as part of a growth industry, many in traditional farming communities have seen their way of life shrinking. In Maine's northern Aroostook County, the acreage for potato farming has shrunk over the last 50 years, and technology has reduced the demand for labor. That's a big deal for the high school students there who've traditionally taken a three-week break from classes each fall to harvest potatoes. With far fewer teenagers now working in the fields, the school board in the town of Presque Isle is looking at a new approach that could end the tradition of the October break and bring the harvest into the classroom. Robbie Feinberg of Maine Public Radio reports. We haven't set up to do any uh, loading. Farmer Brent Buck walks through a sea of potatoes inside a large storage facility in Mapleton, a few miles outside of Presque Isle. The team at Buck's family farm harvests close to 300 acres of potatoes over three weeks every October and stores them all here. We actually, this is the first year since we built it in 82 that we didn't fill all of our bands. For decades, though, workers here have included high schoolers, as many as 20 local teenagers who sorted through rocks, drove trucks, and transported potatoes from the fields during their harvest break. A three-week break for high schoolers that's largely unique to Aroostook County. It's a tough job, but Buck says it teaches students the value of hard work in ways that they can't learn in a classroom. I've had a lot of kids tell me the first week that they would never do this again when they were done. But almost always, come the third week when harvest is starting to wind down, they always uh, come over and will mention, you know, I'd, I'd like to be on the list for next year. I'd like a job again. But with changing demographics and a smaller harvest, Buck now only employs three or four students a year. You know, it's transitioned. You know, we have bought more equipment to do some of the jobs because we have determined that, you know, in some aspects it's harder to find kids that want to work. And as fewer students take part in the harvest, many schools are now reassessing the value of the break. Good evening and welcome to the SAD1 board workshop. The topic was front and center earlier this week at a school board workshop for SAD1, the school district for the Presque Isle area. The workshop was designed as a sort of public debate. Five community members spoke in support of the break and five against. The small conference room at the high school was packed with parents and community members. Local farmers were out in full force. Among them, Kim Hempel, who praised the harvest break and what it taught kids. Self-discipline, responsibility, being punctual are just a few traits that are learned by working harvest. And potato grower Cole Staples says he believes it's a tradition that must be preserved. And to take that unique opportunity from these kids, I just, I can't imagine taking something like that away. But educators and community members said the school board needed to face the changing times. According to a survey from the school district, only about 15 percent of Presque Isle High School students contributed to harvest work during last year's break. 
And local officials say that the harvest break actually affects students in negative ways. The school year starts in early August, one local recreation official pointed out. So many students miss out on up to two weeks of summer programming. And one teacher said that it takes a lot of time to get students back on track after three weeks off. And Presque Isle parent Frank Bemis says it's hard to figure out what to do with his children during harvest break. And we find it to be a struggle to manage the kids on these off-kilter schedules. Uh, things are a little different for that. Trying to do that, we do some more latchkey type stuff where you leave the youngest home. And I've talked to other parents and they have similar issues. Get one kid in, in high school who might be helping out, and that kid, you're going to leave the younger kid home. Those issues have prompted other Aroostook towns to end harvest break. In recent years, the towns of Holton and Hodgden eliminated their breaks, though the schools say they still accommodate students who want to work during the harvest. In Presque Isle, however, it appears that the board may be looking at a different educational model that would incorporate harvest work into the school curriculum. One parent proposed that the district design a cooperative program that would let students get school credit for their work on the farm. Superintendent Brian Carpenter is developing a version of that plan right now to present to the board in February. Meanwhile, back at his farm in Mapleton, Brent Buck says he knows that times do change. But he says he still doesn't want to see the tradition and hard work of harvest break go away. It's a changed environment and... You know, I've got uh, a nephew and two nieces that are their elementary or middle school, and my hope is that that same opportunity to, uh, you know, be a part of something is there for them. SAD1 School Board will decide that question over the next few months. That's Robbie Feinberg reporting. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrea Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. Production help this week from Annie Sinsavon. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. If you like this week's show, you can follow our Facebook page at Next New England. We've got stories from around the region, some videos, and a lot more. Go to facebook.com slash nextnewengland. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwabstone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York and the Melville Charitable Trust. It's powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR 103.7.